Father, we give you praise for your word. And we ask now that you would let us hear it clearly. Let it be preached clearly. Without error, without addition, without subtraction. Let it be rightly divided. And let it be applied, O Lord, to each of our hearts. Give each of us what you have for us in your word this morning. And create in us a spirit to receive it, to believe it, and to walk by it. Lord, we desire to be more like Christ. Would you help us this morning by your word? Speak to us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin this morning with a question. Is there anything about yourself that you would like to change? If so, don't say it out loud. (laughs) If so, what? What do you mean when you say change? Are Are you basically satisfied, only you'd like to be just a little bit better? Are there things that you'd like to change that are deeper on the inside? Not just the externals, like a a new sort of fashion sense, maybe a little loss of weight, but in the heart, in the soul, a feeling, an attitude, a memory. Or when you say change, do you mean you as an entire person would like to be different? You want to replace some aspect of yourself with something else. I mean, how deeply or how radically would you like to be changed? Do you think such change is possible? Or have you grown frustrated? Maybe tired? Then doubtful? And perhaps even hopeless that you would ever change? Well, change will come. Clothing styles come and go. My mother for 50 years had been saying, just hold on to that. It'll be back in style. (laughs) Very few of us dress as we did in the 80s, praise God. (laughs) And our bodies change. My mother also has another term called the middle-aged spread. I've hit that period. (laughs) And with time and experience, some of our attitudes mellow out and others deepen. But here's the funny thing. With all the change going on around us and in us, don't we still feel like we're not there yet? Don't we all sense a need for for more change, for more growth, like, like we're meant to be something we've not quite yet realized? That instinct towards change stirs deep down inside of us, whether it's a small voice speaking to us about something that's wrong in us, or whether it's a voice that keeps pushing us toward a, toward a higher goal. Something like the internal signal a, a worm gets when it's time to change into a butterfly. We feel ourselves kind of cocooning in this life, waiting to become something beautiful, something marvelous, something higher, something more than we are. Where does this longing for change come from? And how does what's inside us get out? 
We've come to that passage in Colossians where Paul is focused on the change that's happened to us as Christians. And he's come now to give us instruction about how that change, which is inside of us as a consequence of our union with Christ, is is now to be manifested. We're in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, and essentially what Paul tells us is, if we have become Christians, and this is the offer to those of us who are not yet Christians, we have become new creatures. We have been given a new self. And that new self in this text is seen in three three ways. We have a a new sexual self in verses 5 to 7. In verses 8 and 9 and 10, we have a new speaking self. A new speaking self. And in verse 11, we have a new social self. A new social self. And what the text tells us is that the sexual self, the speaking self, and the social self are really three ways of measuring what's happened inside this this new self, this new creation. If we wish to know what dominates our soul, what dominates our deepest part of ourselves, then all we need to do is look at what we do with our bodies, with our tongues, and with our relationships. Didn't Jesus tell us that these things come from within? from the heart? Well, union with Christ changes what we do with our bodies, with our tongues, and with our relationships. Expresses itself in a brand new self. You want to be changed? Be united to Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's start with that first point, that by union with Christ, we find ourselves a a new sexual self. Verses 5 to 11 really build on what the Apostle Paul has written really in the entire letter, but most directly in verses 1 to 4. You may remember from a couple of weeks that there were four facts stated about us in verses 1 to 4 which should shape our identity. Number one, we have died with Christ. Number two, we have been raised with Christ. And as Paul says in verse 3, we have been hidden with Christ in God. And in verse 4, Christ is your life. Now, verse 5 begins or includes that word, therefore. He's saying now, since you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ and your life has been hidden in Christ, and indeed Christ is your life, therefore there are some outworkings of that. There are some manifestations of that. There are some signs and significations of that union which you have with Christ. Now, verses 1 to 4 also follow Colossians 2, verse 23. 
And you remember what he said in Colossians 2, verse 23. It begins really in verse 16. He says, now, don't let anybody judge you concerning um, food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. These are a symbol or, uh, uh, of things to come, a shadow of things to come. But Christ is the substance. And he goes on and said, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions being puffed up in their sensuous mind, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. He says these folks have lost connection with the head, and he says this, it is through the head that each joint is knit together and is nourished and grows with a growth that comes from God. He's been arguing that we don't grow in God by religious rules. We grow in God by being connected to the head or being united with Christ and having the life of Christ overflow into our lives. And so when he comes to verse 5, again, he's sort of telling us how it is that a mind set on things above does what religious rules cannot do. How it changes us and gives us a new self. And it begins here in verse 5, as we said, with the sexual self. He commands it very simply. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Or you may have a translation that says, put to death um, your, your earthly members or the members that are on the earth. He's using members or body parts as a symbol of the fallen man, of the earthly man, of the old man, the, the sinful man. He's saying that rascal has to be killed. There is no treaty to strike with him. There's no truce to call. There's no time out. There's no, there's no sort of armistice. You had a war. You, you're battling against your sin nature. And he will not surrender. And he will not make peace. He has to be put to death. And the therefore there just makes it all the more clear that this putting to death of the old man is consistent with the fact that we're now heavenly people, that we've been raised with Christ and joined together with Christ. And, and since we have died with Christ, then everything that's old must also be put to death, that we might live in the fullness of Christ. Notice what he says there specifically. We must put to death sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the same word that we get the English word pornography from. Originally, it referred to uh, prostitution, narrowly. But by the time of Jesus and by the time of Paul, the word was used to describe all kinds of sexual immoral acts. Any kind of sexual activity that is not between one man and one woman in marriage is what's in view here. God regards all other kinds of activity as immoral. Doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual or other. It must be put to death. And not just that, but notice he goes on to say impurity. Impurity must be put to death. It refers to any kind of moral corruption. You've heard of the word catharsis. A catharsis is when we go through some emotional experience or process and, and as we say, we get it all off our chest. We, we let it all out, right? And in the process of getting it all off our chest, we, we resolve it and we feel a fresh calm. 
Well, this word is the opposite of catharsis. It's a catharsis. It is going through these sort of experiences uh, and, and these sort of emotional processes that actually bind you up. They don't leave you in peace. They leave you in bondage. And here he's saying, listen, we got to put away all the kind of sexual brokenness that is a part of our lives. All the ways we are in bondage has to be put away. That impurity has to be put to death. And then it comes to passions. We call this the feels. This is when sexual desire physically overwhelms us. When you hear someone say, I got needs, (laughs) they're in their feelings. And they're in danger of being overwhelmed by their feelings until the point of doing something in terms of activity that God forbids. Or you hear a phrase, someone committed a crime of passion. Right? What happened there? Their emotions, their feelings ran away with them and they did something that they might not have done otherwise in their right mind. That passion drug them off to something that, that God disapproves of. So it is here when, when it comes to intimacy that, that we have to put to death our passions. And beloved, it's important that we understand that not everything we feel is right before God. We live in a culture that says, do what you feel. And that's the only way to be authentic. But think about who we are apart from Christ. We're not holy. We're not godly. And the things we feel are often not holy and godly. So you can be authentically a sinner, but that doesn't make you right with God. Authenticity is a trap, beloved. Some things we feel must be put to death because they're the kind of passions that give birth to sin. And when sin has conceived, James tells us, it gives birth to death. Paul says, drive a knife through the heart of your passions. Notice now, he goes on to talk about evil desires. Again, notice what's happening in this verse. He's moving from the external actions deeper and deeper into the heart. And so now he comes to these evil desires, these impulses or longings we have. We just quoted James 1, 14 and 15. That's precisely what Paul has in mind here. Evil desire is the father of sin and the grandfather of death. And we can't win the war against sin until we conquer the enemy's capital city, which is desire. It's the heart. It's the longings. And this is why finally Paul comes to covetousness. Another word for greed. We covet when we want something that is not ours. And in the Ten Commandments, God says, do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Anything that your neighbor owns, his ox, his donkey. And and it's interesting there, right there in the Ten Commandments, God also says your neighbor's spouse. One of the things that people in their sinful nature are greedy for is is intimate or sexual activity with people who do not belong to them. That is foul in God's sight. And so he says, thou shalt not covet. And Paul says, if you are a new creature in Christ, you must put to death that clutching of the heart, that grasping and grabbing that wants more and more, that is greed and is never satisfied. It has to be put to death. And Paul explains more deeply why. He says, because such covetousness is idolatry. It's false worship. It's the worship of a false god. And beloved, in our hypersexualized culture, 
where in the checkout counter, every other news magazine has 10 tips on this and 10 tips on that. And when all the celebrity gossip is about who's with who and whatnot, is it not evident that sexual desire is a false god in this culture? It is worshipped, it is loved, it is served. And this is why God hates it so. Beloved, don't, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that God has moral commands around our sexual selves because he doesn't want us to enjoy pleasure. He's defined how we are to enjoy that pleasure in the commitment of one man and one woman in marriage. He created the pleasure of it. What he hates is the idolatry of it. So that when we are engaged in sexual immorality, we're not simply, simply seeking our own pleasure. We are, in fact, setting up another God. We are bowing at the idol of idolatry every time we click the mouse and go to that illicit site. Every time we whisper those sweet nothings to someone who's not our wives in order to sort of lay the pathway to that that conclusion, we are practicing idolatry. We are serving our desires, not our God. That greed is a false God. And God will not share his glory with another. The first of his commandments is, you shall have no other God besides me. Beloved, that includes the God of our belly, our desires. So Paul has worked his way all the way back into our hearts. And, and notice what he says now. Not only should we put these things away or put them to death because we are united with Christ and we're new creatures, We should put these things to death because verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And it's closer today, beloved, than it's ever been. The final judgment of God, the righteous anger of God, the holy repayment of God against sin is near. It is coming and very nearly here. And it is expressed against the very things that Paul has just listed in verse 5. You realize that if God were only going to judge the world based on one sin, based on sexual immorality alone, everybody would be condemned. Which of us is free of this? Which of us has not fallen in this way? Which of us is so morally pure that we could stand before God without a Savior? We all need Jesus. Because we all are alike guilty. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, very similar words. Follow along or turn there if you like or or listen to this reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification or holiness. Then he defines what that means. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Notice, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. There is an avenger, but he's not made by marvel. It's a holy God. He is the avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us, notice, for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his his Holy Spirit to you. 
you're here this morning and you have had any kind of sex outside of marriage and you have not yet become a Christian, we're not judging you as if we're not guilty of those things. Almost all of us are. No, we are warning you because we have been guilty of those things and we see clearly the consequence before God. We, we are calling you to flee from those things before God's wrath falls upon you. We are calling you to the only way of escape, which is not now trying to manage your life a little bit better, but actually becoming a brand new creature in this area, which only happens by repenting from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord. The marvelous thing is this. Now, when Christ dies on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sins. And when he is raised from the grave, he's raised in righteousness for us. And those who come to faith in him, God joins them together with Christ so that Christ's life becomes their life. That's the new and eternal life that God offers you. And it is better than idolatry. It is better than sin. And God would have you choose it rather than the false gods who destroy you. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Christian, this text applies to us, doesn't it? The first thing we're reminded of is in verse 7 there, that this old way of life was our life at one point. We walked in these things. This was our habit of life. We lived among the earthly. We lived among the worldly. We lived in these things. But now in Christ, verse 8, these things must no longer be true of us. God wills our sanctification, our self-control, and our holiness. We must think of ourselves as dead to these passions, thoughts, and actions, and alive to Christ. So Christian, have you made the mental break from these things? Have you made the emotional break from these things? The root of our victory was expressed in verses 1 to 3 where we're told there to set our hearts on things above and to set our mind on things above. It is in that mental and emotional act of breaking our love affair with the world and establishing our love affair with Christ that we break decisively the entanglements of the world which draw us into these things. So, in the last two weeks, in application of Colossians 3, 1 to 4, how often have you reminded yourself that you are dead with Christ, resurrected with Christ, hidden in Christ, and Christ is your life? If we're not often reminding ourselves of these things and shaping our thought patterns and our affections according to the truths of 1 to 4, we will not find it easy to break our love affair with these things in the world. If we are not more increasingly heavenly minded, we will be increasingly earthly minded. And we will be susceptible to the things that should not define us rather than susceptible to enjoying our union with Christ. So to put it plainly, beloved, for every member of this church and professing Christian 
And for all of us as a church community, as a whole, sexual immorality must be a decisive part of our past. It must be the old man, the old way of life. Not now how we live. Paul gives us words for this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. You write that down, but, but hear this verse here. Paul writes there, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. That's the vision. That we would be a community of God's people so united to Christ and so delighting in Christ that there is no whisper, no rumor, no reputation of this kind of immorality among us. That's what's fitting for God's holy people. So as a church and individual Christians, God expects us to have this reputation for absolute purity as his people. Which means individually and collectively, we want a holy zero tolerance policy for sexual immorality. We don't put up with it in our own lives and we don't encourage it or allow it to go unlovingly addressed in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And here's the question. Is that your reputation? Is that my reputation? Is that our reputation as a church? It is most clearly what God calls us to. Now let me spend a little bit more time right here because I, I want to make another application if I can. Some of you know I've been spending a year following only women on Twitter. I was hoping it would be a holier exercise than following men, and, and it hadn't always been. Um, I've been mostly reading women authors. And it's been an enlightening year so far. I've learned, I've learned a great deal. And not surprisingly, women think about a good number of things that men almost never talk about. One of those things is called purity culture. Maybe you've heard that phrase. A few of you. In my reading, there's no one definition of purity culture that I found that, that kind of everyone shares. But one helpful kind of insight from that writing and that thinking from our sisters uh, about purity culture is the tendency of churches and leaders to shift the burdens of a command like verse 5 to, to sexual purity, to shift the burdens of that away from men to our sisters. So that our sisters become almost entirely responsible for another person's, a guy's lust or immorality, right? So if he struggles with lust, it's like, sister, don't serve your brother. Don't, don't wear that, right? If, if he has fallen, he has not fallen by himself. He's fallen with another woman. And, and oftentimes the woman is scorned and the guy kind of goes off by his business. You, you see that shifting of, of responsibility and that, that shifting of blame. Or, or even in cases of sexual assault, asking the woman who's assaulted, what were you wearing? As if anything she wore was justification for ever being attacked and sinned against that way. That, that kind of burden shifting, that kind of blame shifting has indeed had its place in kind of Christian circles. 
And listen, beloved, when we shift the blame this way, the goal is no longer the sister's godliness or modesty or chastity before God. The goal very subtly becomes the the convenience of the men. Concern for her godliness and her modesty has, has kind of taken second seat to concern for making life a little bit easier for guys. We end up making men less responsible for their own holiness and self-control while demonizing women for not only their struggles, but also for the men's. That must stop. Notice in verse 5 that we are to put to death what is earthly in you. In you. See, I must deal with what's in me. And, and each of you have to deal with what's in you. The sisters must deal with what's in their own hearts and what they do with their bodies. And, and they must hear God's call to modesty and self-control, right? But that's what God deals with them in them about. And, and men must likewise deal with what's in them. And we will give an account for what we do in the body, Right? And we can't shift the responsibility to others. We must check the messages we give about purity to be sure we're not unintentionally shifting the burden. But now, the Bible not only doesn't shift the burden that way, the Bible stills call for purity. So one of the things I see sort of glaringly missing in the conversation about purity culture is any robust biblical appreciation for purity. And and so the the sort of lopsidedness of that is we can get sort of caught up into talking about how we should talk about these things in a way that puts appropriate responsibility where it lies. And, And we can push back on that to such an extent that much of the writing seems to be pushing back against the sexual ethics of the Bible itself. That's a bridge too far. So so the Bible here calls us all to avoid, to put to death sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. God has not lowered that bar one inch. He calls us all to share in his holiness. That's the only life that's consistent with being a new creation, with being united with Christ. If a person doesn't want this life of sexual purity, then they are idolaters according to to verses 5 and 6. They worship sex as their God and it is doubtful that they are truly Christians. Through union with Christ, we discover a new, a healed, a whole sexual self. Now, we spend the most of our time on that point. We move a little quicker from here on. But there's a second piece here. Through union with Christ, we also experience and discover a new speaking self. A new speaking self. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, again, reminds us that we were, we are not, we're no longer our old selves. We once walked in the earthly man, but now we're different. So now, specifically, we must put away some things. We must throw out the trash of our old lives, including the, the trashy talk that sometimes happens in the world between people who don't know Christ. Verses 8 and 9 give us six things to put away. And this time, the list doesn't move from the external to the heart. It moves from the heart to the external. Notice he starts there with anger and wrath. Those are pretty close in meaning. Anger is strong dislike against someone or something. Wrath is anger plus vengeance or payback. 
Anger and payback, they, they prompt a whole variety of sinful speech, don't they? In our anger, we say a lot of things that we later regret. You know, that, that I'm going to tell them off attitude. It's nothing more than sinful wrath. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And you wonder sometimes people are giving out so many pieces, you wonder if they got any mind left, right? <laughs> and God wants us to remember, as James 1 puts it, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. His wrath is holy. Our wrath is sinful. And I can't think of a single place where sinful anger and wrath are ever justified in Christian speech. Righteous indignation, yes. But sinful anger? That should have no place in the community of God's people. And so he names wrath and malice, but he, or, or, or anger and wrath, but then he also names malice and slander. Those are also related. Malice refers to vicious cruelty. A malicious person uses words like weapons. They, they stab with insults. The word slander comes from the same word from which we get blasphemy. Right? That's a, a blasphemy is slander against God. So slander involves malicious speech against another person's character and reputation. So don't leave yet, Jeremy. I got something for you. Malice and slander is always putting something down, running somebody's name through the mud. Kind of like I do with LeBron James. <laughs> no, stay right there, bro. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. So true confession. I got to put that away. The text says, put that away. So let me publicly repent of all of my malicious slander of LeBron James. I will not call him King James because I only have one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I will say publicly and for the record that LeBron James is one of the greatest phenomenal basketball players in the history of the sport. He is not the greatest. Now, Rick, remember the part about idolatry. Now, he, he <laughs> So LeBron is not the greatest. That is unequivocally Michael Jordan. Right? But I ain't going to trash him no more. I'm going to root against him. But I ain't going to trash him no more. Y'all know how this works out in our lives, right? I mean, you, we're being somewhat facetious. I'm serious. I'm going to stop dogging LeBron. You know, Patrice Wedderburn called me out on Twitter. She's like, ooh, you know, what's up with that? I'm going to stop dogging LeBron. But, <laughs> but y'all know how this works out, right? You, you've met that Christian who, if you bring up somebody's name, they always have glowing, wonderful things to say about him. Oh, yeah, I, I love Jeremy. Jeremy's a godly brother. He's humble. He's always encouraging me. I, I love Nick. Every time I'm with Nick, he teaches me how to hack life and, and you know, how to do various things. And, and, and there are Christians that you meet with, whatever you give them, they multiply it in grace. And then there are Christians, you, you mean, when you say, man, I was with Jeremy the other night. I was really encouraged. The brother exhorted me to the scripture. We prayed. We had a good time. And they're like, yeah, he all right. He all right. But I remember that time. I remember that time. You know, you, you, you know those people, you say something good, and it doesn't matter what you say, they, they always got several things to kind of bring it down with, right? Okay, so what, what Paul is saying here in the Scripture is, we are not to be that kind of church community. 
We're not to be among each other slandering and malicious and cutting one another down and running each other down. But Ephesians 4.29, that, that, that whatever we speak, it, it ought to minister grace to the hearer and build them up according to their need. We're not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. That's God's standard for his people. And then he adds a fifth thing here. Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. We have been set free by the truth. We are then meant to be truth people. We, we in fact, according to Ephesians chapter 4, we are, as said before, we are to speak the truth in love to one another. That's how we grow up into Christ. The, the, the language there is interesting in Ephesians 4. It, it more literally is truthing one another. We, we are to live such lives of truth that we, we almost make it a verb. We are truthing to one another. We're speaking the truth and modeling the truth. And the community is built on the truth. That's what we're called to do with our tongues. We get a, we get a new speech, a new tongue, the language of Zion, the language of angels, the language of holy people. That's what God has for us. Now, why is that the case? Notice verses 9 and 10 real quickly. It's because you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see that metaphor there of of getting undressed and dressed? It's as if you were at a hard day's work, manual labor, and you come home and you, you sweat it through your clothes and you got that nice little funk on you and, and you come in the house and, and uh, what's the first thing you want to do? You, you, you might want to go kiss your wife or your husband. They're like, no, you know, go ahead and hit that shower, right? And you go and you, you get your shower, you get cleaned up. Now, here's the question. Once you've taken that shower and you've cleaned up and you, you smell good, do you put on the old work clothes? No, we don't because it's not fitting for our clean selves, is it? And the same it is, it is with Christ. Christ has cleaned us up. He's washed us off. He's, he's purified us by his blood. We've, we've been cleaned and redeemed. And now we have to get dressed in Christ, in the new man. We take off the old man, Adam, with his practices of lying and cheating and immorality. And we put it on the new man, Christ, with his practice of righteousness and holiness and truth. It's because we're new creations that we are to put away all of these things. And be clothed in Christ. And notice here, the thing about putting on Christ, it's like getting dressed every morning. It's a continual experience. You take that shower, you put on your fresh clothes. Well, you don't just put on one outfit for the rest of your lifetime. No, you've got to each day change and refresh. And so it is with Christ. Each day we are, notice, being renewed in knowledge. It's, it's an ongoing process. We're having our, our minds renewed according to Romans 12. We are growing in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. We're acquiring new thoughts about God. And not only that, we're being renewed, notice, after the image of our creator. In other words, we're growing to look more and more like Jesus. Beloved, I don't know if you know it or not, but man, when he was originally created, was far better than a Picasso or a Rembrandt. It's made in the image and likeness of God. There's never been a sculpture. There's never been a painting. There's never been a sunset more beautiful than you and I as God's creation. But it's as if in sin, somebody came through with a black marker or a spray paint and just sort of went like this all over the Mona Lisa. Marred the image. And we need that 
that dark market of sin removed. And this is what Christ is doing. He's doing it like an archaeologist. He's doing it like someone who restores fine, rare paintings. He's not just sort of painting over the canvas again. He's slowly and carefully chipping up the black markings until the original painting and the original image shines through again. We're being renewed in the image of our Creator. And that's because we share in union with our Creator, in union with Christ. Beloved, you're going to change and you're going to be more beautiful than you can imagine because you're going to be restored if you're in Christ to what God originally made you to be. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. But now this brings us to our third point as we close. There's one last change. We get new sexual cells, we get new speech life, we also get new social, a new social self. See that there in verse 11. Here, that is in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bar- barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And you're reading that verse and you probably are thinking also of Galatians 3 verse 28, where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. What else? There's neither slave nor free. What else? There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Well, it means that being united with Christ creates a new community of radical equality. A new community of radical equality. All of our social relationships are reordered based upon the fact that we are united with Jesus. We live in him and he lives in us. As I said, the word here refers to being in Christ. And then Paul gives us four pairings of words. He gives us, first of all, Greek and Jew, referring to our ethnic identities. The Greeks thought they were superior to every other ethnicity and culture in the ancient world. You might call it Greek supremacy. And and Jews were oppressed people in the Greek and Roman world. But now it's interesting. You can be oppressed and still be prejudiced. So the next pairings, there's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. The Jews rightly understood themselves to be God's covenant people chosen by God in special relationship with God. And circumcision was the sign of that relationship. But growing up around that truth was a hostility, was a prejudice. And so to be uncircumcised was almost a racial slur. And so he says here, there is in Christ neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. And then he moves on. Look at the next pairing. Or the last pairing, slave and free. He goes on now to deal with the economic and social standing of classes of people. Slaves were owned by others. They had limited rights and freedoms. They were at the bottom of the economic and social order. Uh, Free persons were considered higher and better. And then there's the cultural prejudice of the ancient world. You see the reference there to barbarian and Scythian? As we said, the Greeks thought that their way of life and culture was superior, including their language. And if all the pagan peoples or the non-Greek peoples who didn't speak Greek, the Greeks had a slur for them too. It was based on kind of mimicking and ridiculing their sound. They said that everybody else sounded like they were saying bar, 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 bar. And then we get the word barbarians. It's it's a cultural put down. And the Scythians who are named here, we don't know why Paul included the Scythians here, except that Scythians as a people were the most despised people of Paul's day in the ancient world. What's he doing here? He's taking those who are culturally put down and culturally marginalized, and he's saying they are equal with everybody else in Christ. Now, what Paul says 
is that Christ puts an end to all of that. Because Christ is all and is, and is in all, because of that, we do not regard each other according to the flesh any longer. We do not think of each other primarily in racial or cultural or ethnic or class or gender terms. If we are Christians, we think of each other in terms of Christ. Jesus lives in you. Jesus lives in me. And that changes how we treat each other. The basis of our equality in the church is not merely that we are made in the image of God. The basis of our equality in the church is that we have the fullness of Christ. And Christ is all, which means he is the center. He is the essence. And so how you treat me says a lot about how you regard Jesus. And how I treat you says a lot about how I regard Jesus. And how we do that across racial, ethnic, cultural, linguistic, and class lines says something about how deeply we've understood the gospel and our union with Christ. That's why John says, basically, you say you love God, how can you say that? A God whom you don't see. When you don't love your brother who you see every day. The test for our love for God is our love for our brothers. So Jesus creates in himself this radical new community of equality that grows out of our union with Christ and our seeing each other that way. And that gives us in the church a new social order. In a world where all of the scripts are broken, the racial scripts, the gender scripts, the class scripts, they're all broken. And Christ has given us something different. Now let's push this a little deeper if we can. We live in a Christian era where many Christians find it easy to speak, for example, of sexual things. One of the most profoundly personal and private matters in our lives. But many of those same Christians find it almost impossible to talk about social things. Our public selves. Some Christians speak at length, for example, about homosexuality, but many of those same Christians can't find words to talk about sexism and racism. It's really strange that the private should become so public and the obviously public should become so private. It's a really interesting reversal. And when that happens, the church appears to break apart what God has put together. And the church appears and in fact is quite hypocritical, quite inconsistent when it, when it tears apart what the Bible joins together. And listen, it's not that Christians should avoid speaking publicly about sexual matters and then speak more openly about social matters. We should openly address both because the gospel openly addresses both as in this one paragraph. Look at this paragraph again, verses 5 to 11. Notice how how seamlessly Paul moves between our personal sexual morality and verse 11, our public social morality. It's almost one breath. And here's the goal. As Christians, we should want to be as seamless and smooth and fluent in talking about sex and speech and social problems as God is in the Bible. Can we do that? This is what I mean about having the conversation. Not arriving necessarily at agreement at every point or pushing one point of view or the other, 
but the ability, the competence, the wherewithal, the desire to speak about what God speaks about and to do it the way God calls us to do it. If, If we can't do that, then we have to ask ourselves, why not? Is our objection to speaking about the new social order that Christ creates is it a knee-jerk response to the, quote, social gospel? I trust that in verse 11 we see the gospel has massive social implications. Or, or is it because we have been taught some principle about Christians not talking about this for the sake of unity? I trust that we see that the basis of our unity is not what we talk or don't talk about, but Jesus. And our being united in Christ, which frees us to talk about everything because Christ is all and is in all. I wonder if our principal disagreement or objection to talking about these kinds of things that we see in verse 11 has more to do with a wisdom that comes from human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world, but not according to Christ. The ancient world at the time of this letter was written was no different from our world today. In that world, there were tremendous inequalities. As we said, the Greeks saw themselves as superior to everyone. They only gave the Romans a little equality and a little bit more because the Romans grew so strong militarily. Women were second-class citizens all across the board. The economic inequalities existed between slave and free. That's the ancient world, but beloved, our world is built on the same kinds of inequalities. White supremacy replaced Greek supremacy. That meant whites were supposedly, in their own minds at one time, better than everyone else, and small amounts of equality were sort of doled out based upon, in some sense, how white you became. What do you think segregation is about? What do you think about the, the myth of the model minority is about? It's about the preservation of this kind of inequality. The entire American economy was built on slave labor. And do we think the legacy of that economic inequality is just all of a sudden gone? No, we live with that every day. Women have had to fight tooth and nail for every ounce of equality that they enjoy in this society. Only got the right to vote just a little while ago. And are still fighting for equal pay for the same work with the same qualifications. No, Paul's world is our world. We're still living in that same world. And oh, by the way, all of those inequalities, they're not just random. They're systematic. They are based upon things like color or gender. And entire sets of laws and practices are constructed to reinforce that. That's what we mean by systematic. It's not random. Now, the Bible's answer to all of this is not simply to turn the tables and to reverse the situation. We do not replace white supremacy with black supremacy as the nation of Islam does or the Hebrew Israelites do. No, that's as wicked in God's sight as any other kind of ethnic prejudice. And we don't replace sinful patriarchal systems with sinful matriarchal systems. And and we do not answer income and wealth inequality with utopian socialism. We replace all of these things on both sides, on all sides, with Christ. Christ is all. And Christ is in all. And Christ creates in himself this new community this beloved community, as Dr. King called it. 
If we have all been united with Christ, then we must learn to rethink our social relationships in light of that union. To put it another way, we have race, gender, culture, and class issues in the church because we have not thought deeply enough about what it means for us to be new people in Christ. On these issues, the church by and large still turns back to the old man thinking the way he thought and doing what he did. And then we try to justify the old man thinking and division or we play sort of marginal games around the outside and we call it progress. Christ we're putting that puzzle together as old men as if it's Christ walked into the room and flipped over the table. And all the pieces fly off. And he says, we're not doing any of that. We're doing me. <laughs> and I ain't like nothing you've been thinking before. All right? There are ways in which I call you up higher in me, and there are ways in which I confront you about things because I'm making you not a better you. I'm making you to be like me. Christ is all and he is in all. And the church will not make progress until she lays hold of that deeply. Now, there's a striking balance that needs to be maintained. Let me give this to you. Emphasizing our union with Christ does not eliminate these distinctions so that all we have to do is, quote, stop talking about them. Racism doesn't go away because you just decided not to talk about race. Sexism doesn't go away just because we decided not to talk about sexism. No, no, no. Those categories God created and they are there. And ignoring them doesn't fix the problem. But at the same time, beloved, when we talk about these things, we cannot talk about them as if we are not united with Christ and with each other. We cannot be drawn so deeply into racial, gender, class, education, all those other analyses and categories. We cannot be drawn so deeply into those that we almost appear not to be in Christ. We have to talk about the world of earthly men because we're dead to that world as if we are in fact heavenly men. That's the call. That's the challenge. And we got to live this out. So, criminal justice. What should a community support, what should a church built on this kind of radical equality support when it comes to justice and justice practices. Can we really be okay with discrimination along racial lines if we are living out verse 11 where there's no Jew or no Greek? We know that's most true or should be inside the church, but don't we have to live like Christians outside the church? Doesn't this have some implication in principle about how we speak into the school to prison pipeline and how we speak into mass incarceration? And how we speak into every other kind of ethnic discrimination that we find in the world? Or education funding? Would a community with a high emphasis on this radical equality, because we are, we are in Christ and he is in us, would such a community support education funding that favors wealthy neighborhoods and neglects poor neighborhoods? Isn't that just class discrimination further extended? No, we're going to want to see all the little kids who are all made in God's image have, a, have, a, have an equitable investment in all of them, a fair investment in all of them. Zip code should not determine how well you're educated. Neither should class or race. Not if we're serious Christians. 
And not if we're serious about living verse 11 out in the world. Now, beloved, I trust you see that nothing that I've said makes you a Democrat or Republican. It makes you a principled Christian. We're not talking about being partisan. We're talking about being principled according to the Bible and living as Christ says we should live. Now, that is inherently political, but it is not partisan. That, that means whenever you speak the truth about these kinds of things, people hear it as political truth. Having to do with the polis, having to do with the state, having to do with the city, having to do with government and law. But it is not the same thing as giving Democratic or Republican or independent talking points. No, it's an attempt to live like strange creatures in the world. New creatures who are united to Christ. Equal pay. Would a community where there is neither male nor female favor a world where there is not equal pay for men and women doing the same work with the same qualifications? God perish the thought. So we must envision ourselves as profoundly egalitarian or equality-based. I know some of y'all got broke out when I said egalitarian. All I mean there, all I mean there is equality, equal, <laughs> equality-based. But you see that reaction, that reaction tells us something about how stereotypical and how uninformed our use of the language and the conversation is. Egalitarian is a perfectly good word. But you hear it and you go, ooh, we, we ordaining women preachers. No, that, 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 no, that ain't what I'm talking about. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We must envision ourselves as a profoundly egalitarian or equality-based community according to our union with Christ that sees itself living out that equality-based value in the rest of the world. If we don't imagine that, then we will not be showing off the glory of Christ in the new humanity that he's united us to. If we do not embrace this new identity as a community, then something like the Lord's Supper loses its meaning and its depth. See, at the table, we are proclaiming that we are this new equality-based community of every ethnicity, of both genders, all ages, and diverse cultural backgrounds. Though we come with all those differences and those differences have meaning, our backgrounds are not most important. Christ is. He's in the foreground. He's the center and the totality of who we are and what we hope to be. So much so that, beloved, if we're Christians, we are a new spiritual ethnicity. We are a new humanity, to use the language of Ephesians 2. And that's what it means for us to come to the table. We come to the table in recognition that Christ, look around the room, has taken us from all these walks of life. We got brothers visiting with us this morning from Singapore and Zimbabwe. We got folks here who are in the membership or coming from the membership who are from Nigeria and Haiti. We got African Americans here. We've got European Americans here. We've got folks from every walk of life here as God intended. This is one of the goals of the gospel is to create this new community equal at the cross, equal in Christ, enjoying what it means to be new people because we're united to Christ. Beloved, this is our calling. And we're going to have to walk this out in the days and years that the Lord gives us. And I'm praying that he gives us grace to do it so radically that ARC presents a compelling, visible, different script than the rest of D.C. Because as much as I love our city, our city is broken. It is broken on racial lines. It is broken on class lines. It's broken on every line you can imagine. 
And that's why it needs the gospel. And that's why God has sent us here. Let us live up to this as he gives us grace. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, you've given us so much to live up to in your word. And we cannot do it apart from your grace. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Unless we abide in you, we can bear no fruit. But, but if we abide in you, Lord Jesus, you promise that we will bear fruit and it will remain. And that's what we want. We want fruit in our lives, the fruit of every good work. And we want to increase in the knowledge of God through, through faith in you and, and through obedience to your word. And we want to bring other people into this new community that you have created. And so we just, we're asking you for your grace. We're asking you for your power. We're asking you for your love. We're asking you for humility and gentleness and patience with each other. We're asking, oh Lord, that you might make us encouragers and we would build one another up in the faith and we would stir one another up to love and good deeds. We ask that you would keep us from tearing each other down in any way by our speech. And we ask that you would keep us pure. Make us holy as you are holy. And I realize even now that the call to be holy feels like a burden to somebody. But that's because they've not yet seen that it's beautiful. You call us to worship you in the beauty of holiness. Would you help us to do that? And would you help us all to see that a life free from, from sexual brokenness, a life free from slander and obscene talk, and a, a life free from division of race and class and gender and ethnicity and culture, that a life united in you is a beautiful life. And help us to long for that, to be greedy for that, to seek after that with our whole selves. And give us more of it, we pray not only in this church, but in all your churches where Christ is Lord. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.